Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. We are in Deuteronomy 30 tonight, picking up where we left off. And where we left off was, it gets worse. And Israel's history is laid out in its entirety and has been proven true through the last 3,500 years of human history. Um, Deuteronomy 30 picks up right where it leaves off. In verse 1, it says, now it shall come to pass. Notice with the curses and the blessings, it was, If you obey the Lord, this will happen. And if you do not obey, there was an if at the beginning of everything in 28 and 29. But 30 starts with an it shall come to pass. That's not an if statement. This will happen. Um, So we'll pick up where we left off. Um, And at this point, if you are thinking like a Jewish person from 28 and 29, you are thinking, what's next? How does it get worse than what we just ended up with, which was the diaspora and everybody everywhere? Um, And then it comes to this little piece where the Lord, I think, changes the tune and things are going to start to get better for Israel. Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. So 27, 28 outlined the curses and the blessings in particular. Then in 28, we got this progressive set of curses that outlines Israel's history, ending in with a diaspora. Um, and then here in verse one, it says from where God drives you. In other words, that diaspora, the Romans conquering the Jews and killing them in different towns, and, and that's where Masada's story comes from that we were talking about before the teaching, is that a bunch of Jews were hiding out and they, had, they killed themselves rather than letting Rome getting them. But that scattering is something God allows to happen because he wants the Jewish people to be all over the earth for what's about to happen next. He wants synagogues in every city. And if you remember from Leviticus, to start a synagogue, you only needed 10 families. So literally very, very tiny groups of Jews would start their own synagogue. All it required was uh, you'd have your own copy of the Torah. You had to have the word in the middle of it. So there were Jewish synagogues all over the known world by the time Jesus shows up. So it creates this, it's like having train stations in every town. And then God is setting up this amazing context for him to do his next thing. And his next thing's also going to be prophesied in chapter 29 or in chapter 30, which is where it gets neat. So um, it looks like at the end of chapter 28, chapter 29, that this is kind of the end of the Jewish people. But you'll notice, or maybe you've noticed as we've gone through the Old Testament so far, every time there's a passage on judgment that non-believers love to pull out and accuse the Old Testament of being judgy, right after it is a message of hope. Right after it's a message of redemption. And we see that over and over again. When we hear God's voice of judgment, it always comes with a voice of loving hope and possibility 
that comes on as an alternative to that judgment. So we're going to see that here too. Uh, chapter 9, 29, remember, started with the introduction. In 29 verse 1, these are the words of the covenant. That was a huge breaking point in Deuteronomy. So at the beginning of 29, it, it was we moved into a prophetic section, and it was divided by that, these are the words of the covenant. So the covenant's made, it's sealed, and then they have choices to make. And if you remember, there were blessings and there were curses, and God wants them to choose, and he says it through Moses, that you're going to do that. He doesn't want them to be blind, but he predicts and prophesies that the Israelites will be blind to what God's going to do next. They won't see it in large part. And it's not a conditional sentence in verse 1. It shall come to pass when these things happen to you, the blessings and the curses which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the, amongst all the nations where the Lord drives you. He set up that network of synagogues, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul. There's going to be a regathering of the nation of Israel. And this is interpreted in very different ways in different denominations. So just let's be aware of all of them, but understand what the Bible says as we go into those. Because I think in this room, we have maybe different traditions around that. One way to read that is that at some point, the Jewish people will be loved by God according to this old covenant. Another way to read that is that the Jewish people will start turning to the voice of their Lord, which is Jesus Christ. There'll be a massive regathering of God's people under Jesus Christ, the Messiah, because God also predicts the Messiah is going to come in the Old Testament and that that Messiah will be missed. He won't be heard. He'll actually be beaten unto death. And then all of a sudden there will be a massive return of the Jewish people, which is the end of history. And that is part of what's going on there. So this is, these are tough verses. Um, but we see that that's going to happen. And we see in the New Testament that there's an interpretation that Paul has, especially, of these verses. In Romans 11:7, for instance, it says, um, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. And the rest were blinded, just as it's written. And he quotes Deuteronomy 29 when he says it. So if you're reading Romans, the interpretation of Romans is, that when you look at these passages in Deuteronomy, that idea that there will be some Jewish people that accept the Messiah and there will be some that will not, or most of them will not, which is what we see happening in the first century. In, Deuter in Psalm 69, it kind of says the same thing. Deuteronomy 29.4 from last chapter says, Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. So when Paul references chapter 29, He's talking about that blindness or self-delusion and relating it to the Jewish people because they've yet to, they were there to form a vine that the Gentiles could graft into. They were there to create a way, a worldview and a way of thinking that when Jesus came, all the Gentiles could adopt right into that vine. And he says that in Romans 11:18. So Romans 11, by the way, I don't know if you're noticing this, but as we go through Deuteronomy, we're kind of going through Romans too. Romans is Paul's commentary on Deuteronomy in a lar largely the same way that Hebrews is a commentary on Leviticus. Like there's New Testament books that kind of pair up. So I don't know if you've picked up on all the Romans references, but Paul's walking us through this and he's the primary commentator on Deuteronomy that we're using tonight. Um, God's love is going to be unconditional. Um, though there's blessings and curses and that's the if that we had in the last chapter, that now it shall come to pass that God's going to regather his people, not being conditional, is a way to think of God as parent. 
When you get a spanking from your parent, that doesn't mean they don't love you. And when God scatters the Jews and allows the wickedness of this world to happen to the Jewish people, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love those people. This is one of the mistakes that like the third and fourth century Christians made as they started slaughtering Jews, is they started to think that they were cursed by God and therefore that gave them permission to be horrible. And I would argue that those weren't really Christians doing that. They were doing something else, but they weren't necessarily acting by Jesus's commandments. So they have hope. They get to return. These first verses start to introduce that idea. There's this mystery that's coming back, Israel coming back to God. Um, and in Romans 8, 25, it says, I don't desire that you should be ignorant of the mystery, lest you would be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Until the whole Gentile world hears the message of God, then that return of the Jews isn't going to happen yet. At least that's Roman, uh, Paul's take on it. The return then is not necessarily to the land, but it's to God and that heart and soul piece we see in verse 2 is referencing that idea that this is about the heart and the soul of the Jewish people. However, it also mentions that there's this true Israel there, and the true Israel of Paul are the Messianic Jews. They're the Jews that followed Christ. We call them Christians today, but they weren't initially called Christians. It was in Antioch, a Gentile city, that they were first called Christians. And before that, they were called Jewish people that believed the Messiah had come. And today, that's the same thing. The Messianic movement is gaining steam. I'm not going to get into all of it, great kind of study during the week. Google search Messianic Jews and what's happened in the last 20 years. There is undeniably thousands of Jewish people coming back to faith in Christ, but they don't want to go to churches. So they're starting Messianic synagogues. They want to keep the Old Testament traditions, culture that they've always had, but they, they believe Jesus was the Messiah. So Messianic um, synagogues are popping up in almost every city, major city in America, and they're popping up all over the world, and it's the fastest growing religion in Israel. And just this last month, they put in a motion to have Messianic Judaism as an officially state-recognized religion in Israel, which is really exciting, because that's an indication that hasn't happened in human history. And if we're following the history and the prophecy that's already happened, that puts us at a really cool time in history. So watch it, look it up for yourself, see what it is. Verse 2 the key word we see, and they see some key words for the chapter coming up. The word heart, this is about the heart. It's in verse 2, 6, and 10, that there's this command of God, verses 2, 8, 10, 11, 16. There's a return that needs to happen, 2, 3, 8, and 10. And life is the purpose of that return in verses 15, 19, and 20. So the whole idea of this chapter can be wrapped up in that change of heart, command of God, returning to God, and life that you find when you do that. And that's kind of this idea. Verse 3 says, God will bring you back. As worse as it gets, as bad as it gets, God's made them a promise and God's going to keep it. When it comes to God's promises, that's not conditional on what we do. God's going to do what he's going to do. So he's going to be the one that brings them back. He's going to be the one that gathers them. And he's going to have compassion on the Jewish people. As we should too, by the way. Now we get some blessings that pair with that event. First blessing is verse 3. They're coming out of captivity which can be read spiritually or it can be read literally. The breaking the chains of sin or the blindness that was brought up in the last chapter, that dull, that dull thinking that they didn't see Christ will be erased. It'll just be removed, like coming up out of the water and suddenly you can hear again, right? So that verse three says God will have compassion on them. 
It's the same word for compassion that was used back in Exodus when God heard the people of Israel moaning and groaning as slaves in Egypt, and he had compassion on them. And then verse three says he'll gather them, which is the third blessing he's going to do. He's going to separate that clause from activity, from captivity. So not only will he release them from captivity, and is the word there, and he will gather them. So they're two different ideas. Just getting out of captivity doesn't mean you're with God's people. And the same thing's true today. You can accept Jesus Christ in your life, but if you're not living your life with a group of other believers, you're not really gathered with other people. You're kind of a lone wolf out there and you're fair game for the enemy. So one question is, how does God going to gather them and what's that going to look like? I actually have a handwritten note here and I can't read my own writing. What's interesting is that God undeniably does this regathering thing from Babylon. And a lot of people read this as Ezra and Nehemiah fulfilling this prophecy of gathering again. The problem with that idea is we just got done in 29 with a scattering to all nations. When they went to Babylon, they didn't scatter to all nations. So one argument is that that's a really out of context interpretation of the Bible, is that this is talking about indeed something that happens after Babylon. Um, Isaiah 49 verse 6 says, my servant restores and will bring light to the Gentiles. So that light to the Gentiles thing, which is part of, of Isaiah's sequence of events through history, hasn't really occurred if you're thinking about Babylon. Does that make sense? Okay, and then the last piece, Chaldean interpretation. So there's other commentary on this from like hundreds, or actually thousands of years ago now. The Chaldeans believed that the word of the Lord shall gather you, the Israelite people, by the hand of Elias the priest, and shall bring you by the hand of the King Messiah, for this was God's, and God's was content with him, that he should restore the preserved of Israel. Other nations had prophecies about a, a, a Jewish Messiah also. That's crazy. You can't make that stuff up. And they predicted there would be a person that would release the Jewish people from captivity and that would bring them light to the Gentiles and would regather them spiritually and bring their hearts and souls back to the Lord. This is super cool. So verse 3 says that, in, that they were scattered and they will be brought back together. Jesus himself says he's the gatherer. Luke eleven twenty three. if you want your cross-reference, this is cool. Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Uses the same language from Deuteronomy and implies that you and I actually have a role in the gathering that's going to happen. The gathering of the people of Israel and God's people from both the Gentiles and from Israel. And that if we're not doing that with him, something's busted in our lives or something's not right. And I just think that's super cool. This is the point of history we're at right now in the book of Deuteronomy. It was predicted 3,500 years ago. And here we are at that point in history. I kind of want to read what's going to happen next, because this is where if all of these prophecies from 28 and 29 have already come true, why would we doubt that the next few verses aren't also going to happen? That that's also going to be what's going on. Verse three also, another argument against the Babylonian interpretation is verse three uses the word again. Do you see that? As though there are two returns to Israel. And thus far in human history, the Babylonian return is the only one we're aware of. But there's a second return, again, gets used in that, that, that piece. So we're moving forward into the future now. 
They are returning to the land as of 1948, the refounding of Israel. They've been coming back, but they're largely a secular nation. They've not come back with their heart and their soul. So there's another piece of return that needs to happen there. So if you want to go to heaven quicker, go out and try to convert a Jewish person to Christianity. And that could get us one soul closer to getting to heaven. And don't worry, that sounds pretty good because none of this was the doing of the Jewish people. So far, everything, all the action verbs in the first sentences of Deuteronomy 30 have been God doing something to save them. But it gets better. Verse 4. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, and from there the Lord your God will gather you, and, there, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. At this point, there are 8 million Jewish people living in Israel, about the size of New Hampshire. That is a larger number than it was during this period of history, but it's not a larger number than when Ro the Romans took over. So we haven't seen the multiply to that number yet. You'll be driven out to the farthest parts. That's not a repeated thing, but a second scattering that's going to be gathered. So that puts us in this place. This one goes out to the farthest parts of the earth. The Roman diaspora actually did that. Jewish people live in nearly every country on the planet at this point, except for maybe Antarctica. But there have been Jews that have gone to Antarctica, I'm sure, I'm sure of it. God's now gathering them into the land we live during this period of history. Ezekiel 63:24. For I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all countries, and I will bring you back into your own land. And you can just say Ezekiel is just plagiarizing Deuteronomy, because it's very it's or he heard something from God that matches Deuteronomy. Jesus himself says in Luke 13:34, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone and the and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Matthew 24 and Mark 13 quotes Deuteronomy 30 saying, then they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest parts of the earth, from the farthest parts of heaven. Now, People that don't read the Old Testament like to read that and think, oh, he's just going to gather all the Christians. But when you see the word the elect like that, and you see the word gathering from the farthest parts of the world, when you read Deuteronomy 30, it seems like that's much, and it's Jesus talking about it. He's talking about gathering his, his people, his Jewish people that he's gathered. And if you want to take that spiritually and say he's going to gather me too, that's also true. There are verses that talk about him gathering all the faithful from all over the earth. So the land your fathers possessed is in verse 5, which makes it clear that the territory of Israel is a big deal. It actually has to do with that location, that city of Jerusalem, that temple mount that we're talking about. So it's not necessarily a spiritual replacement. That theme gets repeated in Ezekiel 37, Isaiah 11, um, Joel 2, Zechariah 12 through 14, again and again and again through the Old Testament. The land is relevant to this prophecy, and it's important to it. And this was tough for people because up until 1948, from the Romans to 1948, nobody had any idea how the Jewish people were ever going to have their own homeland again. They simply didn't have the strength. They didn't have the unity. They didn't have it. And they didn't do anything to get their nation back. Britain just said, well, we can give them one of our territories and then people will stop killing them everywhere they go. And they did that. They were debating between an African country and Palestine and they decided to go with Palestine. Fancy that. So the British people just made that happen. Verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart 
and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you might live. So we hear the theme repeated again. It seems like physical circumcision will be replaced with a heart circumcision, which is exactly what Jesus does and makes that case. And they sort that out in the New Testament. But they're going to still serve under a physical circumcision for a season. Again, I'm going to Ezekiel because he does a nearly a very similar prophecy to this one. Ezekiel 36 verse 26, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Isn't that been the whole point of Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers? Just keep the law God's got for you and live it. Ezekiel, uh, then he goes on a few verses later, uh, and, you sh- and, I, and, and I shall put my spirit in you and you shall live, and I shall place in you your, in your own land, and then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. The way we know the Lord's behind human history is because the Jewish people get their land back beyond all expectations and, and possibilities. The point of God's correction of the Jewish people, the first point of correcting people is so that they can be correct. And that's the same thing that any parent does with their child. The reason you discipline a child is not because you want to. You don't wake up in the morning and think, how can I discipline a child today? The reason you discipline the child is so that they can be right again and they can be on the right path. And that's the nature of what we see here. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul that you might live. God wants his people to have life and to have life abundantly. And that's the purpose of all this. Romans 8 talks about the indwelling of the spirit, this idea of the heart changing. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, so that so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if any man has not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Based on Jesus' own teaching, he promises a helper that will come. If you love me and keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you a helper that he may abide with you forever, the Holy Spirit. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him and it doesn't know him. But if you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am the Father and you in me and I in you. And who has my commandments and keeps them? And it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest him to myself. If you're a Jewish person and you have read Deuteronomy 30, wouldn't you hear those words coming out of a human being and think, we got to kill this guy? Wouldn't you like be honest with yourself? Think of what Jesus just claimed there in light of Deuteronomy. He claims he is that turning point in history. He's claiming that he is the spirit of God and that he actually is God. And surprise, you don't have to look to the farthest edges of the sea. God's going to come right here and be with you and among you. And that's what Jesus is claiming. It's one of those big struggles. I like to think that if I lived when Jesus was alive, I would have been a Jesus follower. I really like to think that. And frankly, I do believe that if you follow Jesus now, you would have followed him then. But I have to be honest with myself. It would have been hard for me to accept. I'd have been like doubting Thomas. I asked too many darn questions. It would have been really hard for me to accept that a human being claiming that they're God and that they are the grand fulfillment of prophecy from Deuteronomy 30. That would be tough to embrace. You know what I'm saying? And I got to think that it would have to be a work of the Holy Spirit on my heart to get me to see what I need to see. And that's what the Bible says too. 
We don't change people's minds. The Holy Spirit changes people's minds. We're just tools. God just uses us at the right moment and at the right time, like cigarette lady, right? He just used her. She doesn't even know that she's being used by God, but she just opened up the gospel to 18 new households. Good for her. Praise the Lord for cigarette lady. So God's doing a work on their hearts. He's not changing the law, but the heart, but the heart of the covenant is the covenant is that their hearts will be changed. That's the whole idea. Isaiah 11:10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who will stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day, that's the, in that day when that resting place, the grave, becomes a place of glory, only has happened once in history. Otherwise, I'm not a big fan of graves that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. At least that's what Isaiah says. So we have a very consistent opinion in the Bible from multiple authors in the Bible that there's a second gathering of the people under the Messiah or Jesus Christ. I know that was a lot of cross-references, but I think it's really important to see that to understand this chapter. So there's a physical return to Israel. There's a rooted Jesse. He's going to take up the name of God Gentiles will seek him. His grave is going to be a place of glory and there'll be a second return to come into the land of Israel again because of the root of Jesse. Isn't that exactly what's happened? And we start to see that God can actually act in history. Verse 7 says, And also the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies. So it gets better. Not only is God going to regather you, but all the curses you've endured, all your enemies are going to start to endure those things now. And the tables will turn. That's if you like vindication. Um, So the curses on your enemies and those who hate you and who persecuted you. And you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand and the fruit of your body and the increase of your livestock and in the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for his good as he rejoiced over your fathers. Israel's going to turn to God. That hasn't happened yet. Arguably, most arguably, that really hasn't happened yet. They have the land, but there isn't a turning of the heart towards Jesus or towards the Messiah. There isn't even a really a turning to the heart back to Jewish traditions, right? So that hasn't happened yet. God's going to restore them, Romans 11. He's going to renew them spiritually so they'll be just as juiced up about Jesus as we are, and maybe even more so. So, the verses in 7, 8, 9, I'm not going to get into too much because we talked about them back in Deuteronomy 28. It's the same language for the blessings and the same language in the opposite for the curses that were in Deuteronomy 28, 11 and 18. Verse 10, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments, keep his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So that's the deal. And we keep seeing it. Re- it's like we see the same thing repeated over and over and over again. In fact, the use of the Lord your God which is Yahweh Elohim. In other words, Yahweh is singular. Elohim is plural. Elohim was used in Genesis 1.1. So Elohim is actually a plural word, which means God. So the Lord, your gods, uh, which is interesting if you believe in the Trinity or Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being one entity. It's actually the proper way to say it. This is in verse 10. We see the 11th and 12th time that phrase gets used in the opening of this chapter. Um, which is, if in the Hebrew, 12 means government. So this will be the rulership over you will be the Lord your God, Elohim. Jehovah Elohim. God's going to drive them. God, and they're going to turn back to him. 
verse uh, the first use was was the Lord your God will drive you. The twelfth use has to do with them turning back to the Lord. So an area an era of Israel that hasn't happened yet. This great turning that'll happen. So so far we have in the covenant or the 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 word we have in Deuteronomy 5:26 this voice of the Lord your God, and we've seen this here too. There will be an audible voice that happens. It happened with the patriarchs. Abraham actually heard a voice. It happened with Moses. They actually heard a voice. And then we're going to see God's going to actually talk to his people Israel one more time here out loud. And this voice that comes up will also be heard again in the future. The people will hear God in person at some point in the future, just like Abraham, Isaac, uh, just like uh, Moses heard them, and, and just like they're going to hear them here in the next few verses. The Lord gives them his voice as a premise to go on. So we have his word. The word is the commandments and the statutes for the book in the Mosaic era. So they have the voice of God that they've heard personally. They've got the word of God that they can read. And then they've got the Lord and a chance to turn towards him. And the Lord, that, that messianic figure, that future savior that's going to come, is going to be in the future. Jesus says in Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were up until John. And since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. So Jesus says he's the turning point. He's the point in history that this is all going to go from curses to blessings. And you could argue that the Jewish people, especially the ones that accepted Jesus, started to see amazing blessings as soon as Acts chapter 1. Like things turned for them very quickly. And the burdensome oppression of Rome just starts to evaporate because they just reject it. And they move on with life and joy in Jesus Christ. They have to hide in catacombs for a while because there gets to be some Roman anger from that. But essentially, they just, under Jesus, they just lose their shackles. They don't feel the fear that Rome wants them to fear of them and their leadership. Because when you stop fearing death, you can live free. And that's what they experience. Verse 11, they get the choice. For this commandment, which I command you today, is not too mysterious for you. Commandment here is implying the entirety of the law. So everything that we've heard from the end of Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, this word that's been told to you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it. It's not beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it. But the word is near you, very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. So we get that theme again. Hear it, do it. Quality of God is that he's near, he's not far away. Like the Grover in Sesame Street, when he runs up to the camera and says, near, and then he runs way to the back. You guys seen this? And then he goes, far, and he runs up and does it back and forth. This is Moses making it kindergarten simple for him. God's not far away. He's near, he's not far and he's, I just like these verses because it's, you can tell Moses is 120 years old and he's just sick of young people, right? Figure this out. And he's heard it all at this point in his life. The voice of God is hearable. The word is readable. The Lord is lovable. And you got it all in those pieces. You don't have, this is not a difficult thing to understand. The, the mitzvah commandment being the entirety of the law of God is not too mysterious. We are finishing with Deuteronomy. We've read through it. Those of you that have been through the whole thing, there's nothing here that's hard to understand. 
The problem is if we agree with it or not. Like we have our own will that we want to fight against pieces of it, but it's not that it's hard to understand. And it's not mysterious. The Gnostics don't know what they're talking about. It's obvious, it's plain, and it's clear. There's nothing so esoteric about the Word of God that you need to have 20 years of school in order to understand what it says. You need to learn to read. That's why the Jewish people teach their kids to read. So they can read the Torah by the time they're 15. And they can then understand it and have a bar mitzvah. The word mitzvah is the same word we see in verse 11, the commandment. Bar mitzvah means you have read and understand the entirety of the law. You're accountable to it. Now let's have a big feast and a party. Because if they're good Jewish people, they should be having feasts and parties. So, it's not too far off in verse 11. You know, there's no mountain journey that you have to take. You don't have to go out to the middle of the desert and starve yourself to hear from God or something like that. Um, and, and there's religions that do that. Um, it's not in heaven. There's no spirit that needs to translate it. You don't have to wait for some big epic moment in your life. Uh, God's, in fact, going to be the opposite of all of these things if you read this as messianic. Not, he won't be across the sea. He's going to show up right in this land they're about to get. He's not going to be up in the heaven. He's actually going to come down to earth. He's not going to be in the depths because he's going to rise from the depths. So in all these conditions, it's like they're describing like where they're going to hear from God next. For Moses wrote about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way, Romans 10.5. Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above. So when you read the book of Romans, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30 again and basically makes this point. Christ wasn't in the heavens. He came down to earth. And that's super awesome. So verse 13, the sea is that example of something that's too far away. Romans 10 verse 7 talks about who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Uh, you don't need to do that. The word's right on tablets. You can go read it down at the temple. It's not hard to get to. Verse 14, the word's near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. Then in Romans 10.8, if I can keep quoting Romans, but what does it say? The word is near you and it's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we're preaching to you. We're telling you to have faith in Jesus. It's in, our, it's in our mouths and we can communicate it to each other easily. So when you read through Romans, especially Romans chapter 10, it's commentary on this chapter. That you may do it. It's a problem for the Mosaic era because it's accessible, but it's really hard to do. And it's hard to do because we keep trying to do things our own way. Like we wake up in the morning and instantly think of what we're going to do. It's very hard to transform your mind to wake up in the morning and think, okay, God, what do you got for me today? And the closer you get to that point, the more joy, joy and release there is. So the problem of the messianic or the mosaic system is that they know the law, but they can't do it. So then they got to lie about it. And then we get Pharisees. Or they, they know the law, but they can't do it, so they pretend like the law is not personally relevant today and it's culturally contextualized. The Sadducees. So you get the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the two very flesh-like responses to the word of God, which you're incapable of completing. And then you get humble people that just admit, I can't do all that stuff. I'm a, I'm a hopeless sinner. And then you get the third option, which is to follow God in your heart and your soul and to love him and give him your heart. And just say, Lord, I'm yours, and, and, I, and I know that I'm a sinner. Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's Paul's conclusion of Deuteronomy 30. 
is that he reads through this and he goes, that's what we mean by the heart and the soul. That's what it means to be near to you and in your mouth and in your head and right there. You just got to make a mental conversion to God and change your mind. So the law establishes what is holy, which paves the way for Messiah. The sacrifice and atonement of Leviticus establishes atonement, foreshadowing a perfect eternal atoner. And then the choice that we get in Deuteronomy 30 establishes the will of the heart and the heart and the will being the center of all of it, which sets up Israel to choose Christ when he shows up. At least they're supposed to. And that's the idea. They'll recognize God when he shows up. So the covenant has three parts, the law, the sacrifice, and the choice. So then we get to the choice. These are great verses from Moses. These are the ones you write on little signs and put them on your house. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. Again, reducing it to Grover-like terms, making it easy, but I won't imitate Grover twice in one night. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you can live and multiply, and that the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go in to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you will surely perish and you shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in to possess. So speaking of 70s rockers, there, as Led Zeppelin would say, there are two roads you can go by. There's a choice. And the way Moses frames it, he's like a good politician here. He doesn't say you can choose God's will or your will. He says in verse 15, you can choose life and goodness or you can choose death and evil. And that's an obvious choice. Nobody picks death and evil unless you're like goth or something. We all want to pick life and good, so we pick God. And this is a super obvious choice, unless you're really twisted on the inside somehow or another. And then we'll all pray for you. Um, but the way Moses frames this rhetorically is he wants people to understand it in truth. There's nothing that he says here that isn't truth, because that's the end result of picking your own will is death. That's where it's headed, as starting with Adam and Eve. So to love the Lord your God comes first, and it sums up all five books of the Bible, which is why when the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked him what's the most important commandment, it, Jesus has actually read the Torah. So he actually knows the answer to that question. It's kind of an easy answer, and we've seen it like multiple times here at the end of Deuteronomy, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. That sums up all the commandments. So notice the verbs here are love, walk, keep, live, and multiply, and get blessed by God. That's the Mosaic Covenant. And it says, I announce to you today in both verse 15 and in verse 18, making verses 15 through 18 kind of a package, right? This is what I'm saying today, the Mosaic Covenant. But then notice how that shifts in verse 19. I call heaven and earth as witnesses, like any serious ceremony, you got to have witnesses to see it. When Zach and Alyssa got married, there were witnesses there to see it. And that made it real, right? So Moses is calling pretty good witnesses here, heaven and earth as witnesses. Those are good witnesses. All of creation is going to see this is the bond today against you. Uh, I love how he uses the word against because Moses has already prophesied what's going to happen to them. So the witnesses are against Israel, even before they're claiming their homeland. That I've set before you life and death, blessings and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him 
for he is your life and the length of your days that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and give, to give to them. Really interesting stuff here. So in 15 through 18, he keeps saying, today, this is what I want you to do. So that as we move forward into the future, you may love the Lord, verse 20. And we see love the Lord your God one more time there. And that's, again, Jehovah, singular, Elohim, plural. But then notice that when he goes forward from there, that you may obey his voice is singular. That you may cling to him, it's singular. That he is your life and the length of your days is singular. So he uses three singular terms after Jehovah Elohim. In other words, there's a different kind of thing that's being prophesied or predicted here. This is in the future. I want you to do the Mosaic Covenant so that you can do this next piece. And notice the verbs that are there. To love, to obey, and then it changes. To cling, live, live long, and to dwell with God. To be in his home or the place that he's preparing for you. So um, where the blessing is a huge part of the first covenant, here we get dwelling is this new part of this covenant. right? And they're both pieces that Moses is promising that they'll have. So the whole point of choosing life is so that they can recognize Jesus and see him. John 5:46. if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me because Moses wrote about me. And that's Jesus talking. So he's claiming that all of this is about him when he speaks. To live in verse 19 is haya. It's the verb of the broadest sense. It's not just to live like physically to have a life. It's like you should get a life when somebody says that to you. It's to live with abundance and joy and to have fun and do things and to actually have an exuberant life is what's being implied in, in that verse. Verse 19, to prosper. God's heart for mankind has always been that we live in the fullness of joy. It really is his heart for us, but he knows what it takes because he made us for us to have that kind of joy in our life. It's pretty cool. The verb to cling to, huh? Where the law gets downplayed from verse 16 and cling to gets upplayed in this particular passage, it's interesting that Jesus uses that word cling to too, but he tells people to not cling to him because it isn't his time yet. Listen to this. John 20, verse 17. Jesus says to her, that woman's kind of grabbing onto his ankle. Remember that? And he says, don't cling to me. For and He doesn't say don't cling to me ever. He says, don't cling to me because I've not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God, Jehovah Elohim. Don't cling to me because I haven't ascended yet. And when I do, that implies you can then cling to me. And he's using those phrases. Again, the Pharisees had to just be enraged because everything that comes out of this guy's mouth is claiming and using language from prophetic Deuteronomy. And they just had to be, every time they heard it, it had to just rub them the wrong way. Kind of like when we say, oh, Jesus loves you. And some people that just rubs them the wrong way. And for some of us that like to antagonize, we just think that's awesome. So no, I don't like to antagonize, but I do like to joyfully see how people react. Love, obey, cling. It's easy. It's not in heaven. It's not in the sea. It's right before you. It's a person that could cling on to Jesus and actually hold his ankle. Mark 16, 16. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that does not believe shall be damned. 
clear? Far. It's super easy. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Romans 12, 9. Using the same language. You have a choice. Moses wants to make this kindergarten simple. Choose God or choose your own stupid path. And he puts it in those terms. You can choose death and your own will, which leads to aggravation, stress, anxiety, depression. Pick your nasty thing that needs counseling and you'll be over in that camp. Or you can choose God and have abundant life and life abundantly and be able to share that with other people. It's a super easy choice. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and it's even now, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live, John 5:25. And then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will, and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth, Acts 22:14. There's a voice that's not in heaven, and it's not over the sea, but it's right behind our ear, like Isaiah said, that still small voice behind our ear, the Holy Spirit. Revelation 21.3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he dwells with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them, and their God. This is the plan from Genesis to Revelation. It's the goal that we dwell and abide with God, and he's given us a super simple way to do that. All we got to do is abandon our own path and pick God's path for our life. And when we dwell in that land, we're also promised that we'll get to hang out with Israelites at the end of days because he's going to regather his chosen people too. And those people will be awesome. They will be rock stars in the kingdom of God because he'll gather them and he loves them and they're his chosen people. You get to hang around with them. Rejecting God's law is like bumping your head against a wall. It's, it's kindergarten simple. And, but people still do it. And that, but with the way Moses phrases it, you can see where people said, yeah, okay, we should probably do good in life. God's never going to leave us or forsake us. Israel never fails. And as bad as it got for Israel in the last couple chapters, it just keeps getting better and better. And the Messiah, you can see where the people that believed in Jesus thought he was going to conquer the Roman Empire. Like that was their thought is, okay, now it's going to get better. And remember the enthusiasm around Jesus, the thousands of people that would come hear him? Because they're like, he can heal the sick. That fits this prophecy. And he just cured a blind person. That fits this prophecy. That means... Israel's going to return and we're going to get control of our land again and it's going to get amazing. They just missed the timeline by one zipper notch when they did that. Hebrews 10, verse 28 and 29. He that despises Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. How much worse is the punishment, do you suppose? Shall it be for those thought worthy who have trodden under the foot of the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done so despite the spirit of grace. Those that were under the law of Moses are going to get a lot more forgiveness and mercy than we will because we see the whole picture with Jesus Christ in it. And according to Hebrews, like we're held accountable for that because we've seen how these things were fulfilled. We can read through Deuteronomy and like, See the whole picture and we can be really excited about it but we're not supposed to just get excited about it we're supposed to read it and then we're supposed to go do it and we'll see you next week and i'll say what's god doing in your life and you got to start thinking about like how can i act out the love of god in my life and pray for god to give you opportunities so you can follow those opportunities and do what he says even as the law and the prophets are witnesses against israel the law and the prophets and jesus are witnesses against us if we reject him so there's both 
grace on the way and it's coming and God's going to be recalled. God's going to recall Israel back to his people, but he's going to hold the whole world accountable. There will be judgment and there will be forgiveness. And forgiveness goes for those who love the Lord. The promises are really cool too. So if you choose God, his life is number one. You get these blessings. We owe it to God is the second idea that Moses has here. Like we get atonement and we have the promises of God. There's an adventure in following Christ. Galatians 5.22 lays out the fruit of the Spirit. I just want to read them quick because we're promised these things too. Like we're promised blessings, but our blessings are not a hot tub or a fancy car. Our blessings are even better because it just gets better. Love, I would like love in my life. That would be nice to have. Thank you, Steph. It's a good start. I would like joy because that's one of the promises of God if we choose God, joy. Peace, you can rest and have a clean conscience. Long suffering, we're bulletproof no matter what we have to suffer. Like we just endure it. Gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Like I've been off cherry coke for two weeks because God's given me power over cherry coke. And I can just quit things when I need to quit things. And thanks to my wife's help and eliminating all cherry coke in the house. That's made it easier to give up because there's been moments where I was weak. But temperance, it's one of the gifts that we're promised. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let's have those things and embrace them. Don't worry, it gets better, no matter how bad it gets. This hope of salvation is what Israel's given before they start any of the curses they have to endure. That makes this a very dangerous teaching tonight. Because if I'm telling you the hope of Christ and the promises of those blessings... It could be God's giving those to you on the cusp of a roller coaster ride that's about to go downhill, right? Sorry about that. But it's God's word, so we just do it. It's the next chapter. And the next chapter gets even better, right? Because the next chapter introduces Joshua. In the Hebrew, Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. In the Greek, Jehovah is salvation is translated into Jesus. Literally the same word in two different languages. Jehovah is salvation. So it gets even better as that Joshua becomes a Christophic mirror of the life of Jesus at almost every single line. We're going to be able to go back and say, and look, this is where it happened with Jesus too. So Joshua becomes this image of Christ right after the prophecy of this regathering of Israel coming to the hope in him, using singular words like him. So we get this very vague picture of Messiah in Moses that picture gets more and more crystallized as we get to Kings, Chronicles, and the histories. It gets even clearer in the, in the songs and in the books of wisdom. And then it gets crystal clear in the prophecies. So by the time Jesus showed up, there were hundreds of definition prophecies around who Messiah was going to be. This is just the first taste in Deuteronomy 30. Like we just get our first big, broad, sweeping glimpse. But then God starts painting the picture and he's using the fine tip brushes by the time he gets to the prophets. So there's no missing Jesus. You can't argue intellectually that you miss Jesus. And that's where Paul comes in and he just points it all out and writes all the books. So we're going to get, we get into Joshua in the next chapter and this stuff just gets insane. Like you really start seeing the connections between what God's going to do. And he uses Joshua as an image for what he's about to do next. It's super awesome. The Torah then is now complete. We're done. We got a couple of tendums left in Deuteronomy. We got two more Sundays in Deuteronomy. Moses is going to sing a song. We get the image of Joshua. That's the final 
point of the history. So we've got all of Israel's history, which is going to end in this narrative about Jehovah is our salvation or Joshua. And then we're going to get Moses singing, which 120-year-old guy singing a song. We don't have the recording, and that's probably good. We just have the text, and then Moses is going to die. So we, we have that left to kind of wrap up with the Torah. Uh, it's time for God's people to gather together and conquer the new land under Joshua. Um, and, uh, and, and then all we have to wait for is the law to get fulfilled, which is Matthew 5:17. Don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So Jesus has got to show up to fulfill all these things we're reading right now. Next week we do Joshua and I will save you the song or not. Maybe we'll just get through it. But the song's going to repeat. It's a lot of repeat of what we've already seen. So we should be able to wrap up pretty quick. Amen. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing of your word. Lord, we thank you that it's as simple as a kindergartner can understand. We thank you that there was nothing tonight, Lord, that was complex. That it's really easy. We have a choice. We can love you or we don't have to. Uh, and Lord, in that choice, you've made it really clear what the blessings and the curses are. Um, it, it's baffling to those of us that love you, Lord, why someone wouldn't want to do that. Um, but we know from our own history and our own background, Lord, how powerful the will is and how powerful our flesh is and how we do battle against it every day. So Lord, help us to have mercy and grace and love for people, even the ones that reject you. Help us to go into this world and just have compassion on people, Lord, that are lost and suffering and struggling and going through life with the curses uh, just manifest in all areas of their life. Help us to point them to Jesus, that there is a better way to live, um, to have life and to live and prosper. Um, Lord, help us to have hearts and spirits that are more forgiving than they are judging. Um, Lord, we know your law and we can live by it and be discerning, uh, but we also want to draw people into that. So give us that wisdom and that, that uh, eyes to see and ears to hear those opportunities. Lord, help us to walk in your ways. I pray for an anointing and a blessing on each person here today. Uh, each person that's studying your word, Lord, may you bless that effort. Give us opportunities not just to hear your word, but to be doers of your word too, to find opportunities and places in life when we can act on what we've read and we can do it. Lord, help us to have no fear. Uh, the commandment you give to, to Joshua to be strong and to be courageous. Lord, we can root our faith in history. We can root our faith in your presence in our lives. And we can root our faith on the fact that Israel is being regathered and that, that the history is coming true. Uh, Lord, we don't have to take big leaps to do that. We can see, we can recognize, we can know, and we can act on what we know. So Lord, help us to do that. Help us to, to love you and hear your voice in Jesus' name. Amen. Boom. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.